0: Before everything else, please allow me to express my my gladness that all of you have come here to this place in this way, namely in order to search for Dhamma. if we examine things in a broad way we can see that those who travel great distances can be seen in two ways there are those travelers who come as tourists and then there are those who come as pilgrims and between the two there is a very clear and important difference and the the results or the benefits that each receives are also quite different. To put it in very simple and blunt terms, if one comes like a tourist, then one gets Satan to take home. And if one comes like a pilgrim, then one gets God to take home. You've all have probably seen that the majority of tourists are seeking their own pleasure, their own fun, and a great and for the most part, this is just pleasures of the flesh they're for the most part, if not exclusively sensual pleasures. And so when they return home, they just take all this sensuality back with them in order to maintain and even strengthen their human defilements. But for the pilgrim, the pilgrim comes in order to to study dhamma in order to know the dhamma to have dhamma to practice the dhamma and to use the dhamma and so when the pilgrim goes back home they have the dhamma that will help them to survive the dhamma that will save them And so this is what we call taking taking God home with us. So when you come here in order to study Dhamma and practice meditation, you're doing so in order to discover the things that will help save you. And so this This is exactly the purpose or the ideal of of the pilgrim, to find the things that will help save us just in the way that God can help save us. So we'd like you to consider this matter and to see if this isn't what's occurring that one has come as a pilgrim, or to put it in even higher terms, to come as a spiritual pilgrim. And we're also going to take the opportunity to know the Buddha, to know the one who is considered to have given birth to to Buddhism. So we'll use this opportunity to know the genuine Buddha also. Most of you, when you hear about the Buddha, all you know about is what's written in the history books about some historical personage personage who lived a long time ago. This is just the personal Buddha. But that's not the real Buddha. The Buddha himself said that even those who see me in the flesh, who see my skin and my robes, that isn't, they haven't really seen the Buddha. He said to, to see the Buddha, one has to see the Dhamma. Those who see the Dhamma see the Buddha. This is how to see the the real Buddha. Back in India, at the Buddhas, when the Buddha was alive, there were loads of people who, who saw the Buddha but never knew him. There were people who just didn't get any advantages from him. So they, they didn't, weren't at all interested. And there were even some people who made themselves enemies of the Buddha. For example, there were certain women who were very angry with the Buddha because their husbands went off and became monks. And then they, they became like widows. And this made them very angry at the Buddha so there are many examples like this of, of people who saw the physical Buddha but never really knew the real Buddha. There was even cases where people tried to hire assassins to kill the Buddha. And so now the, we need to understand the Dhamma which is the genuine Buddha the genuine the real Buddha is the Dhamma so it's important that we we understand what the Dhamma is the the personal Buddha that most people think about that, that certain person, that certain historical individual, that's that's not the real Buddha. Um, they Most people see a human form, a physical body, and think that that's the Buddha. When we talk about this personal Buddha, there's... The stories of how he was born, how he was enlightened under the Bodhi tree, and how eventually he died. But that's not the real Buddha. The real Buddha is the Dhamma, which is eternal. The real Buddha was never born, the real Buddha wasn't enlightened and the real Buddha didn't die. Please try and get to know this real Buddha. We should understand that it's the real Buddha that makes this ordinary, common individual, this become a Buddha. In Mahayana they talk about all the hundreds or thousands or millions of Buddhas of the awakened ones. And all of these Buddhas, these personal individual Buddhas, became Buddhas because of the real Buddha, because of the Dhamma. So we should see that it's the real Dhamma that makes all these individual Buddhas. So please understand the Buddha in these two meanings. The first meaning is in the terms of people language, whereas the second Buddha is the Buddha of Dhamma language. People language is the ordinary materialistic way of speaking that is used in the world. Most people talk about individual people, separate people, and material things. This is what most people spend their time talking about. We call that people language. So there's the Buddha of people language. But there's also a way of speaking that goes beyond the superficial, materialistic understanding of the common person, to a deeper understanding of of Dhamma. We call this way of speaking Dhamma language. So there is also the Buddha of Dhamma language. That individual, personal Buddha, we can call just the external Buddha or the superficial Buddha. But the Buddha we talk about in Dhamma language the genuine Buddha that is the Dhamma, we can talk of as being the, the inner Buddha or the essential Buddha. We should understand how the Buddha is talked about in both kinds of language, both people language and Dhamma language. So please think, which of these Buddhas can help you? Which of these Buddhas can you have with you so that this Buddha can help you in your living of life? That personal Buddha died a long time ago. And there's just no way that this Buddha can be with you. If we talk about the superficial Buddha, And that Buddha can't help you so it's important to understand which Buddha can really help us and then to come here as a spiritual pilgrim is to come in order to seek and discover the the real Buddha the Buddha that can actually help us so that we can benefit from this this true Buddha and we ought to know that even though that superficial Buddha the historical Buddha passed away in passing away he left behind the Dhamma or the Dhamma remained the real Buddha remained So no matter how many individual Buddhas have passed away, have passed on to wherever they go, the real Buddha always remains, always there, available to to help us, to help save us. This is something the... Spiritual pilgrims should be very clear about. So now let's talk in some detail about the Dhamma which is the real Buddha. The Buddha, the the Buddha once said that he the one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha, the one who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. And then in another place said that the one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. The one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. And so this means that to see, to understand dependent origination is to see the Dhamma is to see the real Buddha. So, the Buddha said that, in short, the one who sees the Paticca Samuppada, or the dependent origination, sees the Dhamma. And the one who sees the Dhamma sees, sees me. Not me, the personal Buddha, but me, the real Buddha. This is something to reflect upon carefully. In our retreats, we've heard that there are certain people who get bored hearing about dependent origination. And they complain that all they want to do is practice meditation and hear about meditation and don't bother us with all this dependent origination stuff. This attitude is very incorrect. It's, it's necessary to understand, but teach us samupada or dependent origination first. It's necessary to understand this in order to practice meditation correctly. So we have to learn about dependent origination so that one begins to see the the real Buddha. And only then can one truly practice meditation in order to have the true Buddha. Please, please keep this in mind. As for the meaning of dependent origination, it's very simple it basically means that depending on certain things dependent upon certain conditions dukkha suffering pain arises happens this is called dependent arising dependent origination and then dependent on certain things dukkha quenches suffering ceases this is what dependent origination is all about the origination and the quenching of dukkha of of suffering happens dependent on various causes and conditions So this is what dependent origination is about. In what way does dukkha dependently arise? And in what way does dukkha dependently quench? That's that's what dependent origination is about. If we don't understand this, how in the world can we practice meditation? in order to end suffering. It's silly if we don't even know what this basic point. Although dependent origination, paticca samuppada, is an internal thing, something that each of us must see by ourselves within ourselves. Although this is true, we still need to hear about it from someone else in order to know where to look and how to look in order to see the dependent origination. So we begin by studying or listening about dependent origination so that we know what we must do in order to see it for ourselves so we understand how to practice correctly in order to see the dependent origination as it's, as it's arising, quenching, arising, quenching, arising, seizing over and over, over and over again within us. It's going on all the time but we don't yet know how to see it. So this is the importance of hearing about it, studying it, about it in this way so that we can use this knowledge then to, to look inside and see this constant arising and ceasing, arising and quenching of dependent origination and then we can see it directly within ourselves. So now we'll get ourselves ready to study dependent origination. Because there are sense organs, which we call the ayatana, that which can be experienced, the experienceables, because we have these six sense organs, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And because we have these sense organs to receive sensual objects, to experience objects, And then because there are sense objects, the uh, um, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental objects. Because these exist, and they exist naturally, all of these are certainly there, they exist naturally. So there's no question about this. Now, when, because they exist, they can interact. And when these two interact, when they come together, for example, when an eye and a sight come together, then there arises consciousness, sense consciousness. And there are six kinds of consciousness, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind consciousness. This is very natural because there are the sense organs, the inner sense organs and the outer sense objects, they can interact. When they do interact, then there arises consciousness. So that's the starting point of dependent origination. When there's, because there's the inner sense organ, the outer sense object, when the two come together, when the two interact, consciousness naturally arises. This is a perfectly natural thing. There's nothing magical or special or anything about it. It's just the law of nature that when sense object or sense organ and sense object interact that one of the six kinds of consciousness will arise. This is perfectly natural. It doesn't depend on some God that makes it happen or on Devas or angels or spirits that help. it's just a purely natural ph- phenomena that happens in a natural way that happens according to the natural law or just or the absolute truth of of nature of the universe. This is perfectly natural that Things would happen this way and you can you can see this right here and now for yourself because it's happening at this very moment the buddha talked about this so that we would look and see it for ourselves and that's what we must do must look and see this right now as it happens and then we can see the starting point Of dependent origination when you see this then it's perfectly obvious that consciousness has just arisen when the sense object and sense organ come into contact when they interact before there is this interaction of sense organ and sense object there wasn't consciousness But then because the two interact, consciousness arises right then, right then and there. So this shows very clearly that consciousness is not any self or some eternal soul, some perpetual self, an Atman or an Atta or anything like this most human beings confuse this consciousness with some eternal spirit or soul that lasts and goes on forever and ever but if we study just this very beginning of dependent origination we'll see that this consciousness just arises momentarily when the sense organ and sense object come together And so this shows us very clearly that the truth of not-self, the truth that there's no, you can't find an eternal soul anywhere. We see this as we study dependent origination just at the very beginning. Then as for the sense organs, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, these, <clears throat> these can exist. They function because there's a nervous system. <clears throat> That's all. Because there's a nervous system, there are eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and so on. It, this doesn't depend on having a self or a soul. And then as for the objects in the universe around us, the sights, sounds, smells, and so on, these are even more clearly not self. They just exist naturally. None of them are I or mine in any way. And so from beginning our study of dependent origination, it becomes very clear this, this fundamental law, this natural law of what is really happening in life. And that we can see that whatever is happening it's not self. And so from at this point we can see that consciousness arises dependent on certain things. There's certain conditions necessary for the arising of consciousness. And so then we see we are seeing the law of dependent origination. And then next we see clearly that when these three things come together, when they meet and function together, when the sense organ, sense object, and sense consciousness, when they function together, we see that that is contact where this makes contact and how these come together and function together as contact can be seen clearly by practicing correctly then the next stage of dependent origination is that if there is this contact when these three come together and there is contact then there naturally arises what we call vaitanā, vaitanā or feeling. Vaitanā means to feel pleased. is pleasant feeling, a pleasantness or an unpleasantness. To be pleased by the experience or to be displeased by it. This is the meaning of vaitanā once there is contact there will naturally be vetana this this feeling and there's just absolutely no need to go and talk about some god or divine divine power having anything to do with this for living beings for living beings when there is contact there is automatically naturally feeling then the next step is that when there is vedana this feeling there arises tanha or craving tanha is a kind of hunger or want when there is feeling there naturally arises want or desire regarding based on that feeling if it's a an agreeable pleasant feeling if it's a a lovely attractive feeling then there arises wanting to get it wanting to have it but if the feeling is unlovely unattractive then there arises wanting to get rid of it wanting to destroy whatever it is so when there is feeling there are there naturally will arise Craving or this, this kind of blind desire. This happens naturally. It's just this is just how things happen according to natural law. There's no need to talk about anyone coming in to help this happen. Now here, here we lack correct understanding. We don't understand things as they actually are. Instead, we have a lot of incorrect knowledge. We see things and understand things incorrectly. We lack what is called vicha, correct understanding. And we have avicha, which means ignorance, the lack of understanding the lack of knowledge or even to know things in the wrong way. And so when when we have this when we naturally have this ignorance, when there is feeling the the kind of wanting or desire that arises is called danha. Danha is a specific term I translate it as craving. It's the to want, to desire in an ignorant way. It's the wanting and desiring through the power of ignorance, through knowing things incorrectly. We call this dana, which is very different than when there is Wisdom. If there's wisdom, then things are understood correctly and there's no ignorance. And so the want or desire that may arise is given a different name. We call it sankapa, which means we translate as aspiration or aim. It's a whole different thing than this ignorant wanting, ignorant desiring, which we call craving or dhanha, which is totally under the power of ignorance. But there's also sankappa, which happens be, through wisdom, through right understanding. And this we could call a aspiration. And so we, it can then, this dependent origination can go in two directions at this point, depending on whether there's ignorance or wisdom at, at play. But whatever we can say with all certainty, that because there is vetanā, feeling, there there may arise, there can arise craving. You can't have craving coming up without there first being feeling. This is absolutely certain. Now what we're talking about right now is what happens when there is ignorance. We're talking about this specific case where there is a lack of correct knowledge. And so when there is feeling, the feeling is ignorant. Bluntly, we can just say it's stupid feeling because it happens without any understanding. And then when this feeling arises, then there, there comes stupid desire, once again, because there's no understanding. And this is what happens when there's a lack of ignorance. And we're talking then about the those series of mental events that will lead to suffering, to dukkha. The other case is when there is wisdom and then we don't talk about desire, we talk about aspiration, but we'll, we'll put that aside for the moment. That's a matter of when we're going to quench dukkha. But now we're talking about the dependent arising of dukkha and so this is happening under the power of ignorance because there's no wisdom so we're talking about the case where wisdom is is missing when there's stupid feeling there arises this stupid desire and when there's this stupid desire when when it's full. When it manifests fully, then there arises a thought or concept in the mind that I must be the one who desires. There must be the I that desires. There's this desire and then there arises the concept, the I who desires, the desirer, the wanter. Or whatever we want to call it. So, because the the ignorant mind is deluded into desire, then it 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 takes this desire to be I, or it has the concept that there must be an I that desires. This is what we call upadana. It's attachment. It's attaching to the desire, attaching to it as, as the desirer. So this is the next step in the dependent arising of suffering. You notice that it happens in a natural way according to the natural law. There's, there's no outside force making this happen. Now, some of you may be wondering this, or thinking that this is illogical. Some of you are thinking, how can the, the doing happen before the doer? How can the desiring occur before the, the one who desires? But this, this wondering is just a product of, of misunderstanding. It's based on the assumption that the doer actually exists. But the doer is just an illusion, a deluded concept of our, our minds. The doer, it doesn't really exist, but when there's attachment to desire, we create the illusion or the belief, the image of the doer, the ego, the self. To see this point will show very clearly the fact of anatta, not self. That there's no self, no soul, no doer, no, no I involved here. It's just a natural process unfolding according to natural, natural law. And so it's not, a, it's not a matter of whether it's logical or not. It's just the facts which need to be observed directly from experience. For example, if something cuts the finger, first there is pain. Then there is the, <coughs> the idea, the I who hurts. If a knife slices into the finger, there naturally is pain. That happens first. Only then is there the sense of the one who hurts, the, the pained one. This is very natural. There's no I or self just kind of waiting around to get hurt, to feel the pain this self or i ego just arises when there's something like pain first there's just pain then the attachment to it the i who hurts arises this is a fact that can be verified from human experience if we if we examine our experience carefully it's the same with emotions such as love love occurs first only then is there the sense of the lover first there's just love and then the one who loves the lover comes afterwards you can't have the lover without love or with hatred, anger, it's the same way. First there is anger and only then is there the angry one. The, The activity, the basic activity of pain or love or anger happens and only then does the mind attach to it, creating the I concept. This is a natural fact that needs to be, needs to be examined. Now, although this attachment, this upadana, is just a deluded concept, it's just created out of human misunderstanding, it still has influence over the mind. The thing, the I, the self, doesn't really exist. But the illusion has the power to, to stir up something more. And so when this attachment is full in the mind, then there arises the what we call existence. Pawa, pawa. This existence then is there and it's, it's the being the having, the existence of of the self. It's not the real self, it's just this delusion of self. But this now there's this complete sense of existence, of exist of having of, of being. Then once there is once there is the existence of this delusive self, it's born it's it's born into the world this this self is born and once it's born it starts take it takes everything as being as belonging to it so once there is this self things belong to it and there is suffering so this is how suffering arises this is the Dependent origination, the paticca samuppada of of dukkha of suffering. So this is the thing that you have to know before you're going to meditate. If you don't have some enough understanding of this, your meditation will be will be lost or aimless. But if you understand paticca samuppada well enough, then we'll know what meditation is about. And then we can meditate. When we see how the arising of dukkha is, and we see how dukkha quenches, when we see this, then we can meditate in order to see this more and more clearly, more and more deeply. And so that we can practice Meditate solely to have the ability to develop the correct understanding so that at the moment of contact, instead of ignorance, there's wisdom. And then so that this arising of dukkha doesn't happen. We've talked about how suffering comes into the world, into our lives. But if there's the right understanding, which comes through, we can develop through meditation, then this ignorant process won't take place and suffering will not be stirred up, will not be caused. So this is what we need to understand. We practice meditation to understand this completely and to have the ability to, to act correctly according to this natural law. Even if sometimes, and so for this reason we need to develop our meditation practice so that wisdom develops, so that insight, insight into the basic facts of nature develops. And then when we, meditation has gone developed enough, we see that all these things are not self. They're not I, they're not mine. And when we have this wisdom, then the baticca samupada cannot occur. Or even if if there's a slip and feeling arises in there, there's some ignorant feeling. If there's enough insight, Insight can keep that feeling from be developing craving, from conditioning attachment, existence, birth, and, and dukkha. So we need to develop meditation to develop vipassana, insight, so that we have the wisdom and understanding to, to deal with this law of dependent origination. So this is the dependent origination that one must understand, that one must study in order to meditate. So we ask you to study this so that your meditation will be be correct. And we ask that you study this as a science, not as a philosophy. If you just study this as theory as philosophy it won't do you any good it'll just fill your head with more ideas but you won't benefit from any of these ideas to just think about it or argue about it philosophically it's necessary to approach this as a science to really get in there and experiment if we do this then this results. If we do this, then this results. To experiment and see the results that arise. So do this with genuine, with your own experience. Study this as a science. If you study dependent origination in this way, scientifically, then it will lead to a growing understanding of life, which, which will certainly be able to end suffering so but it's necessary that it's done scientifically philosophically is just just mind games it won't really really help us and then through meditation we will understand this more and more deeply but it can't be helped that this will start off as a philosophy, that you have to study it intellectually, theoretically first, until through your own practice that you can conquer the arising of suffering. And then once we can conquer it, once we can really apply this theory to life, then it truly becomes scientific meaning the understanding comes fully from our own experience. For example, around the world, this dependent origination is being studied in all kinds of different ways. Most of what's going on in the West, a lot of the knowledge is studying certain material aspects of baticca samupada. But because this is always done theoretically, philosophically, it doesn't help anybody to to quench suffering, to make an end to suffering. It's just more knowledge, more information, more theories. So this is the explanation of how suffering arises dependent on certain things. And the complete story is both how suffering arises dependently and how suffering successively quenches as well. The dependent ceasing or quenching of suffering happens in the opposite way of the dependent arising. So the dependent arising and the dependent ceasing or quenching of suffering is what we call paticca samuppada we can maybe talk about how suffering quenches on a later a later time but we want you to to understand that paticca samuppada explains both the arising and the ceasing of suffering so please Study this Paticca Samupada and learn to practice it. If one sees this Paticca Samupada, then one sees the Dhamma. Remember what the Buddha said, the one who sees Paticca Samupada sees the Dhamma. The one who sees the Dhamma sees me. So if you see this dependent origination, then you see the Dhamma. And if you see the Dhamma, then you will see the real Buddha. And if one sees this real Buddha, then one has gotten something, has found something of inestimable value, of tremendous value and and worth. If you come to Suan Mok in this way, then you have come as pilgrims, not as tourists. And so if you come here as a pilgrim, then you will get the the best thing that a human being can receive from life. If you see this law of nature and understand it, then you will have gotten the best thing that one can get in life. Because understanding this law of nature gives us what we need to end suffering, to eliminate suffering, which is the best thing there is in life to live without any dukkha, without any suffering. So to to get this, to receive or have this law of nature that ends suffering, this is the same as as having God or knowing God, because what else could God do but help us to end suffering to solve all our problems? So to realize this law, is the same thing as to, to know God, to have, to have God. And this is the best thing that a human being can get. So allow us to express our delight, our happiness that you have come here in this way as pilgrims. And we'll finish today's talk at this time.